Hello and welcome to your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Chiori and this week we are talking about how the Western leaders and human rights organizations are trying to investigate the crimes committed in Ukraine by the Russian army. What evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity has been found by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe nations? We are also talking about how the EU is trying to break away from Russia when it comes to energy. How has the bloc's energy policy shifted and what additional sanctions could follow? A mission of experts set by the Organization for Security and Cooperation and Europe Nations has found evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity by Russia and Ukraine. To hear more on this, I'm joined by Euractiv's Alexandra Brzozowski. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Evi. Now, President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of not just war crimes and crimes against humanity, but genocide. U.S. President Joe Biden has called the Russian invasion a genocide too, while Austria's Chancellor Niemer urged Putin to investigate war crimes in Ukraine. How could allegations of war crimes in Ukraine be pursued? It is true that everybody's calling for prosecution now, although the war is not, not over yet. What seems to be the wide Western political consensus is that the crimes and the suffering going on in Ukraine are war crimes and crimes against humanity. It is a bit more difficult, though, when we start talking about the legal term of genocide. So a Jewish lawyer from Poland, um, Rafael Lemkin, coined the term um, in World War II um, in relation to the Holocaust. Um, He wanted to uh, find a word that described what Nazi Germany was doing um, to Europe's Jews and what Turkey effectively has done to the Armenians in 1910 namely killing members of a targeted group of people and working to er eradicate their cultures. So um, when we think about that definition, then genocide under the International Criminal Court um, is considered to be the gravest um, one. In response to the Holocaust and other instances, when groups of people were targeted with destruction, the General Assembly decided that genocide is a crime under international law. December 1946. The General Assembly, by unanimous vote, affirmed that genocide is a crime under international law, which the civilized world condemns, and for the commission of which principles and accomplices are punishable. Announced the legal advisor of United States Department of State, Ernest Gross, during the UN Convention on the Prevention of Genocide. The United Nations call for immediate action and zero tolerance on instances of genocide, according to the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. History is filled with tragic chapters of hatred and persecution that have led to mass violence against persecuted minorities. That is why the world must be ever alert to the warning signs of genocide and act quickly and early to avert it. Genocide and crimes against humanity are operating side by side. However, Philippe Sands, professor of law at the University College London, speaking at an event held this week by the Brookings Law Institution, made the distinction between the two. The essential difference between genocide and crimes against humanity, concepts which are on the front pages of our newspapers as we gather here today, really centers on the question of who is protected and why. If 10,000 people are killed, murdered, exterminated, 
or even a few hundred, that act will invariably be a crime against humanity. But will it be a genocide? That depends, of course, on the intentions of the killers and the ability of prosecutors to prove that intention to the satisfaction of judges. To establish the crime of genocide, you have to prove that the act of killing is motivated by a special intent, the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. If a criminal prosecutor can't prove that a large number of people have been killed with that intent, then the crime of genocide is not established under international law. And so basically, you've had these two crimes operating side by side for the last 75 years and overlapping. Every genocide is also going to be a crime against humanity, but not every crime against humanity will be a genocide. The bottom line of this momentous development in 1945 is that for the first time, the protection of individuals and groups was integrated into the international legal order. Sovereignty was not absolute. The rights of the state over people subject to its jurisdiction or power was limited, and that was a new idea. When we look at, at the processes of other cases, we, we see that this will be a very long and difficult legal process. So it is very likely that the Kremlin could face accountability, but um, prosecuting war crimes is relatively hard. It will all depend on how the case is made, um, basically, once the time comes. And even if um, Putin would be charged with genocide, um, he would be certain to reject the authority of, of the ICC. I mean, Russia withdrew from the court in 2016. Um, on the other hand, when we think about ad hoc tribunals that have been established, for example, for Rwanda and, and Yugoslavia, under the UN General Assembly, and referred to by the Security Council and adopted and passed by the Security Council, um, there we also probably will face the difficulty that Russia and also China are unlikely to give their consent uh, since they're permanent members um, of the Security Council. So most likely, all eyes will kind of turn to the International Criminal Court. The weakness often cited with, with the ICC is that it does not have really an enforcement mechanism where they could go out and arrest a person for, for X crimes. So even if such a special tribunal were one day to be set up and, you know, to investigate the war in Ukraine, um, Putin would likely boycott it too. Zelensky has been speaking about some kind of Ukrainian special mechanism um, under Ukrainian law, but he hasn't given further details on what, what this could entail. So that could be also interesting um, once the time comes to see what, what that could uh, involve. Now, Alex, what can the EU do to support the investigations? So when it comes to the EU side, I mean, the European Commission has pledged to support um, an investigation into potential war crimes in Ukraine, especially after after the reports from Bucha and Irpin and other Ukrainian cities, and also especially after the visits I think they had, they had last week uh, in Ukraine. Um, they had called on member states to assist with a list of requests. I mean, um, the Ukrainian prosecutor have, has given them a list that includes, for example, um, you know, supporting, documenting those crimes, training investigators, providing experts um, and equipment and so on and so on, and also secure lines of communication. So that, so that was kind of all requested by the Ukrainian side. But um, for that, also the EU advisor mission, which has been operating in Ukraine since 2014, will be kind of tasked to cooperate with 
the Ukrainian general prosecutor, also for collection of evidence on the ground. Additionally to that, the EU has also set up a joint investigation team with Ukraine to collect evidence. And that is also in cooperation with the International Criminal Court in The Hague. So um, EU foreign ministers discussed that earlier this week um, after the court decided to to open an investigation and, and uh, how to support it. So it is actually quite important to know that you know EU, EU senior officials are using the term violations of international law, partly also war crimes, but don't refer to, to genocide. And as I mentioned, an OSCE report published this week found clear patterns of violations of international humanitarian law by Russian forces in Ukraine. How important is this and what will this mean for future prosecution? So yes, the report says it found credible evidence suggesting that violation of even, even the most fundamental human rights have been uh, committed. We speak about right to life, um, prohibition of torture and other inhuman and degrading treatments that have been committed, mostly in the areas under the effective control of Russia or entities under overall control of Russia. Um, but beyond the strong wording, it's rather the scope that is quite striking with the report. So it's 110 pages. Um, it details reports of targeted killings, torture, especially rape and, and forced disappearances. Um, and this was conducted over three long, three week long fact finding mission by, by OCE experts. Um, what is interesting, I mean, the mission was launched by, after 45 countries triggered um, an OSCE mechanism, the Moscow mechanism, which is used usually to look into allegations of human rights abuses. So it had a large European support. Um, and when you look at the stories that, that are included, I mean, it includes reports of, a, for example, a Ukrainian interpreter who has been held in captivity by Russian forces. It also includes a report of a woman who has been raped multiple times in the presence of her child. So for many of those incidents, the report says that they would constitute war crimes, but does not fully declare them as such. Following the reports, the UN Women Executive Director, Sima Bachaus, condemned these crimes and asked for investigations and justice. We are increasingly hearing of rape and sexual violence. These allegations must be independently investigated to ensure justice and accountability. The combination of mass displacement with the large presence of conscripts and mercenaries and the brutality displayed against Ukrainian civilians has raised all red flags. I think, you know, we will see a bit more of, of, those, of those reports probably coming the longer this war drags on. Um, and also, they will require serious national and international inquiries. So on the spot with forensic experts and so on and so on. So in general, as experts told us, um, those preliminary reports could be theoretically then also used as evidence in a larger international tribunal once the war is over. But for that, the war needs to end first. Now, one of the EU leaders that took action and asked Vladimir Putin to investigate the crimes committed in Ukraine is the Austrian Chancellor Karl Niemer, who visited Kremlin this week. To hear more on what happened and what was expected during that meeting, I spoke with your actives Oliver Noyan. Oliver, what happened during their meeting and what were his expectations? Well, his expectations weren't too high. Um, I mean, he was um, totally aware that his presence in, in Russia like wouldn't turn the tides or anything. Um, the main calculation behind this meeting was more like um, feeding into a really common approach that we see in Europe, but especially in a German-speaking area, 
which is like confronting Putin what is happen- with, with what is happening in Ukraine. So the common narrative is that Putin is only um, surrounding himself with advisors who um, feed him with positive information. So um, a lot of Western leaders believe that if you um, talk to him and if you tell him about the situation, that, that, that you don't agree that this is a war crime, um, all of those things, that this has kind of a socializing effect on him, where there's at least somebody opposing him, something that he's not used to. So we've already seen that with um, the French president Emmanuel Macron, or also um, the, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who regularly call Putin and discuss those kind of things with him. And what Nihama tried to do is like we um, 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 going into the same direction. He tried to um, face Putin face to face and confront him with those war crimes that are happening and 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 the problems that 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 Western leaders are seeing. So um, that's also why. Um, the timing is, is also really crucial here because the day before he was actually in Kiev, the weekend before he was in Kiev, we also saw um, the war crimes firsthand. So he reported, for instance, in, in, in the video conference with journalists afterwards that he even saw himself some dead bodies that were like only partially um, buried and those kind of things. And he also tried to confront Putin with um, these experiences that he had. There was, of course, like a huge danger with this approach. Like a lot of experts actually beforehand warned that um, Nihama's visit would actually feed into the um, narrative of the Kremlin, that they are not that isolated, that there is still a Western leader willing to, to, to come to Russia and that there would be, that would be, have been the worst, like pictures with Nihama and Putin um, shaking hands or anything like that. But none of this happened. So the, the Austrians really made clear from the beginning that they want no press conference, no, 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 no joint press conference, that they want no pictures. So um, the, German, uh, the, the Russian media um, um, engine really didn't profit that much from, from the visit, as it was expected by experts beforehand. And the Austrian chancellor asked Putin to take responsibility and investigate the war crimes in Ukraine. How do you think this would evolve? I mean, it's refeeding into what I said before, where he tries to to confront him with what's happening, taking a clear stance and opposing Putin. It's it's really about this. Like when it comes to reinvestigating war crimes, there's not much hope um, that this will actually happen. There you have two problems. Like first, Russia itself has never ratified the Rome Treaty, which is like the legal basis for um, for the, the International Criminal Court. And secondly, if a country has not signed or rat- and ratified the, tr- the, the Rome Treaty of the International Criminal Court, um, then the international community can only take action if Security Council in the UN is, is greenlighting it. But as we all know, Russia is sitting on the, on the Security Council, so, and as the Security Council can only take decisions unanimously, there is no hope at, at, at all from my perspective. Thank you, Alex and Oliver. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. Now moving on another topic, not far from the Russian concerns, 
More sanctions may be coming, focusing mostly on the energy sector. To learn more about the sanctions in place and what is to come, I'm joined by Euractiv's energy and environment reporter, Kira Taylor. Kira, thanks for joining me. Thanks. The EU is trying to break away from Russia when it comes to energy. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've witnessed a worsening energy crisis in Europe. How has that affected EU's energy policy? Well, the issue was that this energy crisis was going on long before the invasion of Ukraine. So we were seeing rising prices in the latter half of last year. Um, and then you had the invasion of Ukraine and that then worsened Europe's energy crisis. So because of these concerns about the cost of energy, particularly the cost of fossil fuels, and also the concern that Europe is sending money to Russia, which is invading Ukraine, and we're seeing all the news coming out of Ukraine um, for the last few weeks, there are these concerns that Europe now has to get off fossil fuels and particularly Russian fossil fuels. And that's causing a shift in Europe's energy policy. So we're seeing a push for diversifying energy away from Russia. There were attempts from 2014, but you're really seeing momentum and action behind that now. Um, so the EU really looking to other partners like the US, like Azerbaijan, Qatar, um, to provide alternative uh, gas, particularly from the Russian supply. On the other hand, you're also looking at a push for more renewables and energy efficiency. The European Commission put forward a revision of its uh, climate laws so that included the Energy Efficiency Directive and the Renewable Energy Directive in July. And it's now telling the co-legislators, so the European Council and the European Parliament, to increase the targets that the Commission itself put into these documents. And that's to increase renewables and energy efficiency in order to allow the EU to be more energy independent, so to rely on itself for energy. And we're also seeing a change to the energy transition. So if you look back a few months ago, uh, gas would have been the transition fuel. So it was the fuel that was needed to get EU countries away from coal and into renewables. But gas um, and Russian gas is now seen as the enemy. Um, and that narrative is kind of spilling over onto all gas, whether that, that's fair or not. It depends who you talk to, whether you're um, an, an environmental NGO or a government. Um, and that could then go two ways. It could lock the EU into more fossil fuels because countries are using more coal and also they're building up infrastructure to get gas from other countries. So maybe they're uh, building up LNG infrastructure like um, at ports. Um, or you could see a shift towards more energy efficiency and renewables. And I think we're still really to see how much that balances out. And it probably depends on, on a lot of factors that we just don't know yet. Now, the EU has implemented a number of sanctions against Russia. Energy is included in these sanctions. What sanctions have already happened so far? Yeah, so we've seen a few in the energy sector, but it's clear that the EU is still quite cautious around sanctioning Russian energy. They know there's an issue, but also the EU is so reliant on Russia for its energy supply that there are real concerns as to what would happen if it did just fully ban everything. Um, Poland has always been more ambitious when it comes to it. Uh, it was calling for a ban on coal pretty much from the first day of the war. Uh, Germany is one of the countries which is kind of trying to slow down these energy sanctions because it is so reliant on, uh, on Russia. 
So we've just had the fifth sanctions package. That saw a ban on coal, which is the biggest energy sanction so far. Um, it affects one quarter of all Russian coal exports and amounts to about uh, 8 billion euros of loss, uh, loss of revenue f- per year for Russia. That comes into force from August 2022. It basically gives time to wind down existing contracts. Um, but there are questions as to whether it could have been shorter and whether Germany pushed for that 120 days. Um, notably, the, there is also a ban on ships coming into the EU from Russia uh, in that fifth sanctions package, but that has an exemption for energy. So when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that means that it's going to stop Russian LNG coming into Europe. It doesn't because there is this exemption for energy. And then you look at the banks that have been sanctioned. The banks that are to do with energy payments between the EU and Russia, they are still not sanctioned. Um, And so you're still seeing these payments from the EU to Russia for this energy. And that now totals over 30 billion euros, uh, which is much, much bigger than the amount of money that uh, the EU is spending to arm Ukraine, for instance. And what does the future hold? So we're hearing about the sixth sanctions package um, and whether that would include a ban on oil. So the European Commission is working on these additional proposals, possibly on oil imports. And there's an EU country idea for specific payments channels. So so what's called an escrow account where money would go to this account and, and be held until maybe the war is over and then it would be sent to Russia. I think there's a lot more detail we still need to see about that. There's certainly support from countries like Ireland, Lithuania and the Netherlands um, to increase the amount of energy sanctions on Russia. They will have to get this past countries like Germany and also Hungary. Um, If you look at the European Parliament, it has voted in favour of banning coal, gas, oil and nuclear fuel. Now, that's non-binding and it doesn't have that much sway over EU countries. But it does bring nuclear fuel into the discussion. And I think that's something which we haven't really seen that much, that there are supplies of nuclear fuel coming from Russia. And there is also maintenance of nuclear power plants in the EU being done by Russia. And I think that conversation is yet to really happen. So it's interesting that the European Parliament highlighted that. Finally, what would the new sanctions mean for the EU countries? A number of countries are highly dependent on Russian oil. How can the EU support them? So I think with all of these sanctions, it's really a question of balancing them against the damage caused to Europe's economy. And in terms of energy, the EU has tried to mitigate that by looking to other partners, particularly when it comes to gas, to diversify its supply. Um, also things like Repower EU, looking at how to increase renewables and energy efficiency to allow Europe to become more independent. But at the end of the day, there's, there's only so much that the EU can do if it is cutting off a significant amount of its energy supply. Um, the good news is that we're coming out of the winter, so there is less pressure on heating. But already EU countries are having to think about how to uh, build up their gas stores for next year. So that will already be a concern for them. And countries are looking towards alternatives. So Italy signed a deal with Algeria. Uh, Lithuania has managed to swap Russian gas for LNG. So there are small movements where EU countries are beginning to find alternatives, beginning to take steps away from Russia. I think the question is just how quickly can they do that? 
and what sanctions will they bring in in the meantime? Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Gira, and our time is up for this week. I am Eva Kiori, and this was your Active Spin the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed in two weeks' time. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.